0: Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 255. Today we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's plan for for climate, Joe Biden's climate plan. The full title of it is the Biden plan for a clean energy revolution and environmental justice. So in previous episodes, I've talked literally dozens of episodes. I've talked through the Green Party's Green New Deal. I've talked through Uh, Bernie Sanders Green New Deal. I've talked through the Democratic Socialists of America Green New Deal and probably there are another one or two Versions of the Green New Deal that I've touched upon Now the Joe Biden Green New Deal. So Joe Biden is now our president-elect and This is his plan for addressing climate. I will also be talking about your Hart Hagen's climate plan the principles the proposals and the priorities, not necessarily in that order, but I want to show that I'm not just bashing Joe Biden's plan. I also want you to know where I'm coming from because it's easy to throw rocks at somebody else's plan, but if you don't have a plan of your own, then what good are you? So I want to share with you some elements of my plan. So just a little background. Climate change is a big, fat, hairy deal. It really is a mortal threat. To the human species, and so I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we need to be talking about the truth about this uh, mortal threat. Uh, To there are two other mortal threats to the human species. One of them is the loss of biodiversity. That means biodiversity is how the health of nature is measured. When biodiversity goes down, that means nature is going in the wrong direction. In any particular locality, if you can increase the biodiversity in that locality, that means in that locality, nature is working better there. So we want more biodiversity. But instead, we're losing species at a rate of a thousand times the natural rate. One thousand times the natural rate is the rate at which we are losing species. This is not a good thing. This is not a good trend. We don't want to go there, and yet it's happening. And uh, the third threat to our very existence is nuclear war. Now, and nuclear weapons. Now, that sounds very heavy, and it's like, God, we got to avoid this guy, because he's talking about these heavy things. But I want to ask you, why is it heavy to talk about nuclear weapons? And is it because it's dangerous? And it's not because it's dangerous. Human beings deal with dangerous things all the time. So the fact that nuclear weapons are dangerous has nothing to do with the fact that it feels so heavy. It feels so heavy because we can do virtually nothing about it. Uh, You know, so that's the problem, you know, if we had more of a democracy, then we could do something about nuclear weapons. Uh, But instead we have a plutocracy, a plutocracy is where money is in the driver's seat. It's the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules. So we hear about money in politics and we don't stop to think. If, money, if there's so much money in politics then do we really have a democracy actually we have a plutocracy and that's one of the main things that we have to address if we're going to do a serious job of getting to a better place with climate change. So the purpose of this conversation the purpose of this show is to talk about how to solve the problem of climate change and I talked about those other things the nuclear war and the biodiversity because those three problems all have the same cause and the cause in my view is a lack of democracy the cause in my view is that money runs the show and money doesn't care about people at the end of the day money just wants to make more money and so but let's talk about Hart Hagen's climate plan. Let's talk about the principles, the priorities, and the proposals in Hart Hagen's climate plan. Let's do that for about five minutes or so, maybe 10 minutes, and then we'll get into Joe Biden's climate plan. So in Hart Hagen's climate plan, I have seven principles, and here are the principles. Now this is, let me just get into it. Number one, people first. People should be first in any climate plan people should be first so if a climate plan involves ideologies that are let's say people come before money people come before profits people come before ideology now ideology the ideologies that trip us up include the free market and uh, American exceptionalism So if American exceptionalism is more important than people, then we need to change that. As a matter of principle, people need to be more important than American exceptionalism, and people need to be more important than the free market. Principle number two in Hart-Hagen's climate plan, nature has rights. Now, some people think it's the craziest thing in the world for nature to have rights, but guess what? Corporations have rights, and corporations aren't real. Corporations are a human invention. We made up corporations and we gave them rights. We, we didn't make up rivers, we didn't make up mountains, we didn't make up ecosystems, we didn't make up species. Na- uh, rivers and mountains and ecosystems and species need to have rights because we depend on them. Anybody in America should be able to sue if the Ohio River is too dirty because the Ohio River needs to have its own set of rights. So principle number two, nature has rights. Principle number three, care is greater than production. So this comes from uh, David Graeber, he said, you know, Our economy, we measure the health and success of our economy by production and consumption, but that's wrong You know, we shouldn't measure the health and success of our economy by production and consumption We should measure the health and success of our economy by care and freedom like you know care is like this So you make a glass once and then you wash it a thousand times. There's a lot more, you know, let's take care of the glasses that we have instead of making more. And the same with cars. Let's take care of the cars that we have instead of making more. The same with ecosystems. Let's take care of the ecosystems that we have and that is more important than production and consumption. So care, is greater than production. Care is more important than production. Item number four, freedom is more important than consumption. So what is the purpose of our lives? What is the purpose of our economy? What is the purpose of our government if not to give us freedom? And yet politicians are going for that consumption baby because they're playing to their base. Their base is the corporations that give them money so we need to consume 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 that's why we have so many cars it has nothing to do with transportation i mean we didn't have to have cars as the centerpiece of our transportation but they in the 50s we were guided into this economy that is heavily based on consumption but freedom is more important than consumption so let's do an economy where freedom gets its gets its proper place. So freedom might mean we work less. Freedom might mean we have a universal basic income so that survival is off the table. Survival is taken care of. Martin Luther King was for the universal basic income. He called it an annual guaranteed income. So he said let's eliminate poverty. Let's write a check to people every month or every year at the poverty level so that poverty goes away. So I say let's give everybody you know, $20,000 a year so that poverty is not even an option. And then that gives people more freedom so that we don't have to have this economy that's rooted in consumption because an economy rooted in consumption is killing the planet. An economy rooted in consumption is co- causing climate change. And an economy rooted in consumption is causing a loss of biodiversity. So let's not do that. Let's make freedom more important than consumption. Item number five, enjoyment is more important than activity. So, you know, we're going to see in the Biden climate plan, there's all this emphasis on activity, all this emphasis on American exceptionalism, American ingenuity and American innovation. But all that is, is activity. But is it, you know, is it enjoyment? Let's, let's prioritize enjoyment over activity. Item number six, fairness is more important than pride or accomplishment. So being fair to people, I believe in giving people a fair share, a fair shake, and a fair shot. If people of color had a fair shake, they wouldn't have to grow up in neighborhoods that uh, statistically people of color are much more likely to grow up in neighborhoods that have a lot of toxins in the neighborhood. So people of color are much more likely to be exposed to environmental pollution than uh, white people. So people of color are not being given a fair shake. So fairness is more important than accomplishment, you know. So some people, like people who consider themselves to be good Americans and they worked hard for a living and they got where they got because they worked hard They don't want to give very much of a social wage to people that they think are not working very hard for it, but we need to get to where fairness is more important than pride or accomplishment. Pride and accomplishment is good, but if we forget fairness, then what kind of species are we? What kind of country are we? If we, don't, if we don't have fairness. So another example of gross injustice and unfairness is how the extent to which poor people and people of color, especially poor people of color, are locked up. We have the biggest penal colony in the world. Here in the home of the brave and the land of the free, we have more prisoners than, uh, than any other country in the world. And many of them are locked up because of minor nonviolent drug offenses. So let's get to where fairness is actually a priority. And somebody might say, What does the ha- any of this have to do with climate? Well, we'll get to that. I assure you that all of this has a lot to do with climate. Uh, mainly, I think climate is a justice issue, first and foremost, front and center. Climate is a justice issue. If we think we're gonna uh, address the climate problem without putting justice front and center, then we are making a big mistake. We can have all the solar panels in the world, we're gonna lose this fight if we don't put justice front and center. We can have all the windmills in the world, but we're going to lose this fight if we don't put justice front and center. So item number seven on Hart's list of principles, principles that should be, uh, should be front and center for solving climate change. Item number seven is care of the least of these is not optional. Uh, so the least of these is a biblical phrase. Jesus said, in as much as you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. In other words, the people that are down and out and downtrodden and uh, whatever you do to them, you do to me. So don't pretend to worship me if you are neglecting those who are down and out. This is especially true in like American foreign policy where, you know, we go to Iraq and we, over the course of time, we have killed minimum a million people in Iraq minimum a million people in Iraq not hard to prove that not hard to demonstrate that so we go into Iraq guns a because somebody killed 3,000 people on 9-11 3,000 Americans died on 9-11 so in order to compensate for that we go into Iraq and kill a million people what does that say about how much we care for the least of these. What does that say about us as a country? So item number seven is care of the least of these is not optional. Care of the weak and vulnerable is not optional. I repeat, care of the weak and vulnerable is not optional. If we want to win this fight, we will care for the weak and the vulnerable in America and abroad. If we want to win this fight, we will care for the weak and the vulnerable in Latin America, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, all over the world. We will give a darn about the weak and vulnerable or we will lose this fight. We can have all the solar panels in the world, but we will lose this fight if we don't care for the weak and the vulnerable. We can have all the windmills and all the electric vehicles in the world, but we will lose this fight if we don't care for the weak and the vulnerable. We can change our food system and change our transportation system, but we will lose this fight if we don't care for the weak and the vulnerable. So there you have it. I've gone through the top seven principles of Hart Hagen's climate plan. Now let's go to Joe Biden's climate plan and let's pick out some phrases, some sentences, some passages, and let's say, okay, what does this mean? What does he plan to do? What does he propose to do? And two main things, what's the rhetoric and what's the reality? So in the climate por- report I've always said you know, one of the main jobs that I have is helping you separate rhetoric from reality, especially when it's politicians, because so often the rhetoric of politicians does not match the reality. And then beyond that, so I'm going to question, I mean, given the person that he is, given Joe Biden's record, I'm going to frequently say that I don't think he is serious about this. But then there are other instances where maybe He is exhibiting American exceptionalism, and I'm saying, look, that's a problem. American exceptionalism is not the way to solve the climate crisis. So let's get into Joe Biden's climate plan. So here's how Joe Biden's climate plan starts out. He says, from coastal towns to rural farms to urban centers, climate change poses an existential threat Not just to our environment, but to our health, our communities, our national security, and our economic well-being. It damages our communities with storms that wreak havoc on our towns and cities and our homes and schools. It puts our national security at risk by leading to regional instability that will require U.S. military-supported relief activities and could make areas more vulnerable to terrorist activities. So that's the first full paragraph of Joe Biden's climate plan. Now if you say I'm not going to cut Joe Biden any slack on this, you're probably right. I hope that doesn't get old, but it's my job to help you separate the rhetoric from the reality. Real quick, uh, it says, you know, climate change poses a threat to our health. Well, if you cared about our health, we would have Medicare for all. Remember Hart Hagen's, you know, climate related principles, people first, people come before ideology. And we need to care for the least of these. We are in a COVID crisis. We are in a national health crisis, but we can't be bothered to do single payer health care. So Joe Biden has said that he would veto single payer health care, even if it was passed by both houses of Congress. Joe, that is not how you care for the least of these. That is not how you express your professed Catholicism. Another item here in the first paragraph of Joe Biden's climate plan is that he he talks about our national security, so climate change poses a threat to our national security. Okay, so I'm gonna say national security is a nothing term. Whenever you hear the term national security or national interest, ask the person what that even means. National security means virtually nothing. National security should mean that we care about the health and safety of the people within our borders. But usually, when they talk about national security or the national interest, they're talking about protecting the corporate, you know, the, the, the corporate property, the corporate opportunities. You know, they're going to bat for American corporations, American corporate interests like fossil fuels, like agribusiness, like mining companies, like retail giants, like, um, like uh, McDonald's. You know, these companies, that they're, they're going to bat for American-based transnational corporations whenever they talk about national security or the national interest. Uh, And in fact, you know, national security and the national interest is absolutely, it's bad for climate if you consider that war is really bad for climate. We'll get into that, but war is really bad for climate because you're talking about manufacturing a lot of weapons, you're talking about a lot of movement of ships and planes and troops. That takes a lot of carbon. It's bad for biodiversity. It's bad for human health. War, American style. There's a lot of chemical weapons in war, American style, not least of all depleted uranium, which is part of our bombs. And it Pollutes the landscape, whether it's Yugoslavia, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan. These people are going to be exposed to American-style chemical warfare in the form of depleted uranium for decades, if not centuries. And so that that's bad for the environment. It's bad for human health. And the Pentagon is the biggest emitter of carbon in the world. It is really bad for climate. If we want to do something good for climate, then we will reduce our defense, so-called defense, we will reduce our defense by 90%. But anytime you hear talk of the national interest or national security, what they're talking about is increasing military readiness, which is exactly the opposite of what we need to do. It says here that it, meaning climate change, climate change puts our national security at risk by leading to regional instability that will require US military supported relief activities and could make areas more vulnerable to terrorist activities. Well, if you think the military is a good response to anything, then we need to talk because the military is almost never a good response. Military present, it's not even a well-intentioned way to address these problems. It is, you know, the military exists to support the transnational corporations. The military exists to support the worldwide capitalist system, which means it's for the plutocracy. And one of the main things we need to do is get rid of the plutocracy. We're supposed to have a democracy, but instead we need, uh, but instead we have a plutocracy. We need to get rid of the plutocracy and get the democracy we've always been told that we're supposed to have. And so the military supports the plutocracy. Anytime you talk about the, anytime you hear talk about the necessity of the military in this or that situation, think that is a sham, that is a fraud, the military does not exist to support, to, the military does not exist to protect us. The military does not exist to make us safe. Therefore, the military does not exist to protect anything called national security or the national interest. So let's continue with Joe Biden's climate plan. It says here, if we can harness all of our energy and talents and unmatchable American innovation, we can turn this threat into an opportunity to revitalize the U.S. energy sector and boost growth economy-wide. We can create new industries that reinvigorate our manufacturing and create high-quality, middle-class jobs in cities and towns across the United States. So, the troubling thing I see here is talking about boosting growth economy wide. So, a big question is can we solve climate change and still have economic growth? And, and, you know, what politician would not talk about economic growth? But do we want economic growth or do we want the things that economic growth is supposed to do for us? When you talk about growing the economy, you're talking about growing a figure called the gross domestic product. In other words, take all the transactions, all the income, all the sales, add them up, that, you know, nationwide for an entire year, and that's the gross domestic product. So is gross domestic product a good indicator of well-being? You know, I say no, because since when is our well-being supposed to be tied to the total number of transactions, the total income, the total sales. It's really a a poor indicator of how well we are actually doing. I suggest that instead of talking about gross domestic product, we should talk about gross domestic happiness. How happy are we? How can we increase the happiness of Americans? If we had Medicare for all, would that increase the happiness of people who struggle with medical bills? If we had Medicare for all, would that not increase the happiness of people who otherwise can't afford the health care they need? Something on the order of 40 or 50,000 people die every year because they don't have access to adequate health care. Medicare for all would solve that problem with the stroke of a pen. Instead, what we're doing is paying a, a, a exorbitant premiums to health insurance companies, we're paying needless bills to hospitals, we're paying uh, sky high prices for pharmaceutical drugs. All of that increases the gross domestic product, but does it make people happier? For that matter, the war machine, uh, all of the planes that we make, the boats that we make, the, you know, the weapons that we make, all of that increases uh, gross domestic product, but does it mean we have a happy culture? So whenever somebody talks about economic growth, that should be a red flag, because the focus should not be on economic growth. The focus should be on happiness, And not only is economic growth a poor indicator of human happiness, a lot of times it is, you know, the things that are going on when the economy is growing, a lot of it is just the opposite of what we need. Plus, gross domestic product and economic growth do not measure the hidden costs of the economic activities that we have. So if there's a farm that you know is killing the uh, is killing the waterways you know the way we do farming is harmful to our ecology that hidden cost of harm to our ecology is hidden and it shows up nowhere in the gross domestic product the hidden cost of weapons and the use of weapons shows up nowhere in the gross domestic product the hidden cost of denying people health care shows up nowhere in our gross domestic product. So we're not going to grow our way out of the climate crisis. In fact, just the opposite. If we're going to solve the climate crisis, We need to stop paying attention to economic growth, pay attention to more important things, pay attention to more relevant things, and stop listening to politicians who talk about economic growth as if it is the be-all and end-all because it's not. I've got about 30 seconds left. Let me leave you with some thoughts. One of the main things we need to do is to separate rhetoric from reality. What are politicians really saying? and sometimes you have to unpack that terminology. But more importantly, we need to get to a place where we have public policy that puts people first. People first, ideology not even a distant second. People first, American exceptionalism is not even a distant second. People first, and the sham that is national security is not even a distant second. Thank you for joining me, hope you come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 256. Today we're talking about Biden's climate plan. But first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. We have serious problems to solve. Climate is only one of the serious problems we have to solve. Climate is only one of the mortal dangers that we face as a species. The other two mortal dangers that we face as a species are biodiversity loss which is the sixth great extinction, which means we are losing species at a very rapid rate, probably 1,000 times faster than the normal natural rate of extinction. We have not lost species at a rate this fast since 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs disappeared. And yet for every 100 people that have heard about climate change, probably not 5 or 10 have heard about biodiversity loss or the sixth great extinction but it's a serious problem to be solved and it has many of the same causes as climate change so climate change causes biodiversity loss biodiversity loss causes climate change but in my view plutocracy causes both but we'll get into that the third serious threat to our existence is nuclear weapons and okay, nuclear weapons that sounds so heavy I need to tune this guy out but why is, are the Why is the idea of nuclear weapons so heavy? It's not because they're dangerous, it's because we can do so little about it. You know, a true democracy is where you have a right to vote on that which affects you. Does the presence of nuclear weapons affect you? Yes. Do you have the right to vote on it? No, not Really, because for time immemorial both parties have been in favor of them and you only have so much choice at the voting booth. So we have these three problems to solve, three serious mortal problems to solve, but the ruling elites are not solving these. In fact, to me one of the most disturbing things about climate change is how unresponsive are the ruling elites, how unresponsive is the business class or the oligarchs that really run the show. They give lip service to it. They're willing to make money from it. They're willing to try to gain some political capital on the basis of climate change, but they're hardly responsive at all. They're, they're not responsive. It's like they're whistling Dixie while they're headed toward a cliff. They're fiddling while Rome burns. So we, the people, have to solve this problem. We, the people, have to rethink everything. In order to solve this problem, we have to rethink everything we've been taught because much of what we've been taught is just indoctrination. I like saying what we learn in history class is not history, it's propaganda. And whoever tells the story creates the world in so far as the media tells us stories that we buy they create the world. In so far as our teachers told us stories that we buy and internalize, they created the world. Now teachers are good people, it's just they're indoctrinated too. So we have serious problems to solve. In order to solve these problems, we have to rethink everything. We have to rethink history. We have to rethink how power works. We have to rethink what is freedom? What is freedom really? We've been told Ever since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, that we are—we have all this freedom, and America is the freest country in the world. But what is freedom? In many ways, we don't have very much freedom. So we really have to look at that. We have to rethink everything. And I like saying there are three institutions that are fundamentally letting us down: media government, and business. Three institutions, media, government, and business that are fundamentally not what they represent themselves to be. So the media is supposed to, they're supposed to be fearless truth-tellers, but do they tell us the truth or do they, they systematically tell us lies? So the media is not what they represent themselves to be. Government is not supposed what it represents in itself to be because the government is supposed to be for the people. When the government talks about national security, you would think that they're actually talking about something called national security, in other words, safety. But what is called national security is actually how to keep the population in fear and in danger. The third institution that is fundamentally not what it represents itself to be is business. So business and I mean big business, holds itself out as it's a live-and-let-live world, we have all this freedom, it's live-and-let-live, we won't bother you, you don't bother us. Don't over-regulate us, you need to leave us alone so we can be the engines of growth. Never mind that we're creating all this pollution, never mind that we're shipping jobs overseas. We are the engines of growth and you need to not over-regulate us so that we can create uh, all economic growth and therefore well-being and prosperity. So the, the lie is that it's live and let live. We're supposed to leave them alone and they'll leave us alone. But business does anything but leave us alone. They put all this pollution into, their, into our environment and they're not leaving us alone when they do that. They steal our democracy by paying off our elected officials and they're not leaving us alone when when they do that. So three huge institutions in our society, business, government, and media, all three are fundamentally not what they represent themselves to be. So we need to rethink everything. And in order to solve these problems and in order to usher in the life that we want and deserve, we have to rethink everything and we have to know what we want. Knowing what we want means we know, you know, it means if your representative or your mayor or your governor or your president came into your home or met you on the street and said, what do you want me to do? If you're going, bah, 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 I don't know, I've never been asked. And that would be a natural response because we really have never been asked. We're told to vote for this or that person that is supposed to change everything and protect you from the big bad other person. But at the end of the day, uh, the government that we have is not really for the people. So let's talk about Biden's climate plan. It says here, Biden believes the Green New Deal is a crucial framework for meeting the challenges we face. It powerfully captures two basic truths which are at the core of this plan. Number one, the United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on an epic scale to meet the scope of this challenge. And two, our environment and our economy are completely and totally interconnected. If we can harness all of our energies and talents and unmatchable American innovation, we can turn this threat into an opportunity to revitalize the U.S. energy sector and boost growth economy-wide. We can create new industries that reinvigorate our manufacturing and create high-quality, middle-class jobs in cities and towns across the United States. We can lead America to become the world's clean energy superpower. We can export our clean energy technology across the globe and create high quality, middle class jobs here at home. Getting to a 100% clean energy economy is not only an obligation, it's an opportunity. We should fully adopt a clean energy future, not just for all of us today, but for our children and grandchildren, so their tomorrow is healthier, safer, and more just. As President, Biden will lead the world to address the climate emergency and lead through the power of example by ensuring the U.S. achieves a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. On day one, Biden will sign a series of new executive orders with unprecedented reach that go well beyond the Obama-Biden administration platform and put us on the right track. And he will demand that Congress enacts legislation in the first year of his presidency that, one, establishes an enforcement mechanism that includes milestone targets no later than the end of his first term in 2025. Number two, makes a historic investment in clean energy and climate research and innovation. Three incentivizes rapid deployment of clean energy innovations across the economy, especially in communities most impacted by climate change. Let me draw your attention to this phrase, greater ambition. It says, the United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on an epic scale. In other words, we need to do more. Well. I think, in many ways, we need to do less. It says here, we can create new industries. Well, in my opinion, we need to uh, dismantle some of the industries that we have. It talks about, we need to harness all of our energy and talents and unmatchable American innovation. Well, is American innovation better than other people's innovation? Are Americans more innovative? Than other people? Are Americans more hardworking than other people? And harnessing our energy and our talents how is that going to occur? Who is going to be in charge of that? Are we going to be taking orders from the people who have all the money? Uh, are the people who have all the money going to be able to organize our society and call the shots? It says here we're going to become a clean energy superpower. Well, the word superpower is a little bit troublesome. You know, we are a superpower militarily. We have 800 foreign bases worldwide. We export and sell more weapons than all other countries combined. We spend more money on the military than the next 10 countries combined. If you ask people in Latin America, I'm not sure they want more of what's called America the superpower. I'm not sure if America being a superpower serves the average person. It says here we can export clean energy technology across the globe. Well, how does that work? Does that mean we keep patents on our clean energy technology? See, patents are, are a problem because a patent is a monopoly. A patent, if, if I have a patent, that means only I can make the product that this patent represents. Other people can't make the product that this patent represents. And patents are supposed to drive innovation, but actually they harm innovation because they prevent other people from copying the product that is patented. So when he talks about being a clean energy superpower or exporting clean energy technology across the globe, are we talking about a process that concentrates more power and more money into the hands of a very few people? And if we keep concentrating power and money into the hands of a very few people, is that a situation that is going to lead to environmental health? Is that a situation that's going to lead to a stable climate? It says here, getting to a 100% clean energy economy is not only an obligation, it is an opportunity. Well, I agree on both counts. It is an obligation and it is an opportunity. But opportunity for whom? Is it an opportunity for everybody? Is it an opportunity for the average person? Or is it just an opportunity for a few very privileged and powerful people? Is it an opportunity for true prosperity and true freedom? Or is it just an opportunity for, uh, to concentrate the power into the hands of a few and let a few people dominate everybody else. It says here that the US, that we will ensure that the US achieves a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. Well, 2050 is a very long way in the future. Besides, what does 100% clean energy mean? does is solar power 100% clean energy I submit to you that solar power is not 100% clean energy. If you want to make solar panels, you need aluminum, you need glass, you need uh, you, you, the solar panels are devices, you need rare earth metals like Coltan, you need lithium for the batteries. These are not clean processes and to characterize anything as 100% clean energy, is, in my opinion, a dangerous fantasy. So that's why I say we need to take things like solar power and wind power and electric vehicles, and we need to go slow. Not that they are a low priority, but they're not a high priority either. They are more of a medium priority. I can name a number of things that are a high priority that go ahead of solar power and wind power and electric vehicles. Because all of those things are opportunities for pollution. All of those things uh, create the use of fossil fuels. You need fossil fuels to make solar panels. You need fossil fuels to make windmills. You need fossil fuels to make uh, electric cars. So Biden's climate plan says we can create new industries that reinvigorate our manufacturing and create high quality middle class jobs. Well, what that says to me is that they're going to throw a lot of money at billionaires. They're going to throw a lot of money at billionaires like Elon Musk. They're going to throw a lot of money at companies like Google. And all the while, energy consumption is going to go up and up and up and up and up. And fossil fuel usage is going to go up and up and up and up and up, even while we say we're converting to a clean energy economy. Nobody wants that to happen, but some are okay with it. Because there are people in this world who are okay with degrading the earth as long as they're increasing their wealth in the process. So instead of creating new industries, I'm proposing that we reduce the economy by half. I'm proposing that we take the economy and we eliminate, almost entirely, certain industries and certain activities that do not serve the average person. I'm suggesting that we reduce so-called defense by 90% because defense, so-called, does not serve the average person. The average taxpayer spends between $3,000 and $6,000 per year, depending on what you count. Do you only count the Pentagon budget, or do you account those things that are defense expenditures? They're just not in the Pentagon budget. Homeland Security, uh, Veterans Affairs, and nuclear weapons are not in the Pentagon budget. So the defense industry is a highly polluting industry, uh, you know, never mind all the people that are killed. I mean 3 million people in Vietnam, probably over a million people in Iraq, probably 200,000 people in Afghanistan, 200,000 people in Guatemala, 85 people, 85,000 people in El Salvador, uh, 500,000 people in Indonesia, uh, killed either by American forces or killed by the people that are trained and uh, advised by American forces at the behest of U.S. corporations. Defense is a big business, it's a big industry, it's highly polluting, there's a lot of carbon pollution, it's very disruptive of climate, it's very disruptive of local cultures. It does almost no actual good in the world so I say let's reduce defense by 90 percent. So instead of creating new industries Let's get rid of the the low-hanging fruit. The high priority is to reduce by 90% or get rid of things that do not help us, that do not serve the average person. We don't want a Department of Defense that just makes the world more dangerous for everybody. Another thing we can reduce by 90% is air travel. So, you know, air travel and the manufacture of new airplanes should be reduced by 90%. So some people are talking about creating new industries. I say let's get rid of the industries that we have that do not serve the average person. And then let's reallocate the time, money, energy, and resources that go to these industries that don't do anybody any good. So air travel, so uh, people might say, oh, I like getting on a plane and flying somewhere. Well, maybe you can do that. Maybe that's okay. And maybe that's the 10% that we keep. But let's look at the 90% of air travel that does not help the average person. Military air travel does not help The average person. It only makes the world more polluted. It destroys families and communities and lives. So military air travel, let's eliminate that. Let's eliminate the uh, air travel done by global uh, transnational corporations like McDonald's and Home Depot. These are, you know, that doesn't help you. That doesn't serve you. You can have a local restaurant instead of uh, fast food. Besides, air travel is subsidized. Air travel is subsidized because they don't have to pay taxes on jet fuel. Air travel is subsidized because usually airports are built with taxpayer dollars. So let's get rid of 90% of our air travel and let's replace that air travel with rapid bus transit. Let's replace it with uh, rapid bus transit and trains. Now somebody might say, you can't go to Europe on a train, and that's true. So maybe that's part of the 10% that we keep. But let's not keep the 90% that is not helping anybody thirdly let's re- reduce new cars by 90% so we're going through the things that instead of creating new industries and having more and more and more activity more and more and more and more energy consumption let's reduce our energy consumption by getting rid of activities that don't help you and me like building new cars so we have to fade out we have to phase out cars anyway why don't we stop building new cars. Two-thirds of the pollution associated with the car is, happens before it rolls off the assembly line, or at least about 60% of the pollution associated with a car occurs before it rolls off the assembly line. So if we stop making new cars, then we will immediately reduce the pollution associated with the making of new cars. That's why if somebody buys an electric car like a Tesla, well, you know, it doesn't matter if that car has a lighter carbon footprint during its lifetime. You've already accounted for two-thirds of the pollution when it rolls off the assembly line. So let's reduce the manufacture of new cars by 90% and somebody might say, well, what are those people going to do that we're building the cars? We can find a way if we have leadership, we can find a way if we have clarity, if we know what we want, we can find a way but we can't let our minds be polluted by the bile and the pablum that is coming out of the corporate owned media. We have to have an imagination, we have to talk to each other, we have to talk about what we really want, we have to talk about what freedom really is, and we have to stop being owned by people who just want to use us for their own wealth aggrandizement. So let's reduce defense by 90%. Let's reduce air travel by 90%. Let's reduce new cars by 90%. Let's get rid of these things that don't serve the average person. Now somebody might say, well, you know, I'm not sure how I would get around if I didn't have a car. And You know, that's not by chance. That is by design. So let's talk about where our transportation system really came from. And one of the most dramatic parts of this is that transportation spending on automobile on highways, uh, outnumbered spending on mass transit by 100 to one. It is not an accident that you need a car to get everywhere. People spend on average $8,000 or more per year on cars. That is a huge boon to the people that are getting that money, not just the auto companies but the, uh, the oil companies. So what does it take to operate a car so you buy the car, you have to put gas in it, you have repairs from time to time, you have financing, and you have insurance. So there are, you're, you're paying a lot of money to a lot of people just to have a car. How would you like to not have to pay $8,000 per year to own and operate a car? How would you like to have a functioning transportation system that does not require you to spend $8,000 per year per Car. If you're a family that has two cars, how would you like to get by with one? If you're a family that has three cars, how would you like to get by with two? If you're a family that feels like you need two relatively new cars, how would you like to get by with a new car and an old car? You know, how would you like to not spend so darn much money on cars? And the fact that we have to spend so darn much money on cars is not a product of the free market. It's not a product of human nature, it's not a product of the democratic process, it's a product of a program and a series of programs that occurred in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s that made sure that mass transit went away and that you would need a car to get everywhere. I'm reading from a book by Noam Chomsky, Year 501. He says, the role of the federal government was to provide funds for complete motorization and the crippling of surface mass transit. This was the major thrust of the Federal Highway Acts of 1944, 1956, and 1968. Implementing a strategy designed by GM Chairman Alfred Sloan. Huge sums were spent on interstate highways without interference as Congress surrendered control to the Bureau of Public Roads. About 1% of the sum was devoted to rail transit. In other words, only one percent of this money was dedicated to rail transit, and the other ninety-nine percent was dedicated to building highways and getting rid of surface mass transit, getting rid of buses, getting rid of uh, you know rail cars, light rail. This is in a phenomenon called the Los Angelizing of the U.S. economy, a huge state corporate campaign to direct consumer preferences to suburban sprawl and individualized transport as opposed to clustered suburbanization compatible with the mix of rail bus and motorcar transport this program this effort this phenomenon involved a massive destruction of central city capital stock in other words rail cars Uh, and relocating rather than augmenting the supply of housing, commercial structures, and public infrastructure. In other words, we're not going to rebuild the downtown. We're going to get rid of it and move it out to the suburbs because that's that's how GM makes more money. And as we know, what's good for GM is good for America. I've got about 30 seconds left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So the main thing here is to put people first. We need to stop believing the lies of a government and of a business sector that wants to do anything and everything but put people first. Hart's climate principles number one is people first. Put people over profits, people over money, people over ideology. People are more important than the ideology of American exceptionalism, and people are more important than the ideology of the free market. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Come back soon.